The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you uh, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 10. We're going to start reading at verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have heard Have they? They've never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. So last week we looked at Romans 10 and and 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we talked about the indispensable uh, necessity to actually hear the gospel for faith. You have to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. But here's what the last paragraph is going to show us, and that is, hearing is not a guarantee of faith. In fact, it is a sobering thought that you could have hundreds of people for decades who sit under the same ministry of the word, hear the same word, hear the same gospel, Lord's day by Lord's day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and simply hearing the word is not a guarantee of faith. How many people are going to stand on that day of judgment who sat under the sound of of gospel preaching for their whole lives. And they heard. 
And they heard again and again. And yet on that day, there will be no demonstrable faith. Now, Paul's burden for his Jewish brothers and sisters is is a burden for those who have heard but not believed. And I want to just, I want to say that, that even though Paul's focus is on his Jewish kinsmen according to the flesh, there is, there is a real burden and a real pain that those of us who have proclaimed the gospel to our loved ones year after year, decade after decade, and they've heard and they've heard and they've heard their unbelief is the greatest burden of our hearts. And so Paul says, back in chapter 9, he says, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Chapter 10 and verse 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. When he gets into chapter 11, which... We'll pick up when I get when I get back. He says in chapter eleven in verse thirteen, he says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. The apostle's heart bled. He says in the very passage that we read, he says, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so as chapter 10 concludes, the apostle follows verses 16 and 17 with a painful exposition of Old Testament texts that speak to Jewish unbelief. Now, the first thing that he says is in verse 18, he says, But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. So the focal point of this this final paragraph is Israel, or if you will, ethnic Jewish people. This last paragraph was anticipated in verse 16, and it actually is now paving the way for chapter 11. Now, there's some debate among commentators in verse 18 when Paul says, but surely, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Uh, who's the they? So some people say, well, it's, it's Israel or it's the Jewish people. Other people say that it's Gentiles. And I want to say that in light of the emphasis on this particular verse, I think just Paul sees it as in a sense, everybody, both Jew and Gentile. 
Because what Paul's going to do in verse 18 is he's going to make an affirmation that the voice of the gospel has in fact gone out through preachers and if the ends of the earth have heard, that is if all of the Gentiles have heard, then certainly the Jewish people have heard. Now, when Paul says, and you can see it in, in your translation, hopefully, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? And then indeed they have. The very way that Paul asks the question, then and, and then turns around and says, indeed they have, he's underscoring that they have in fact heard. But there's an interesting thing that Paul does. In order to demonstrate that they've heard, and in the context, heard the gospel, he uses Psalm 19.4. You say, well, what's unusual about that? Well, Psalm 19 is about God's two books. That is the book of nature and the book of his law. Or if you will, the book of creation, how God reveals himself through the creation, and then how God reveals himself through scripture. And so you go to chapter, or Psalm 19, and you see verses 1 through 6 is about God's revelation that comes through creation, right? And so is it true that God reveals himself through creation? And the answer is, of course it is. The apostles already told us that back in Romans chapter 1, that actually the, the whole creation speaks and testifies to the power and the wisdom of God as creator, That's what Psalm 19, 1 to 6 is about, is about this testimony of God through his creation. And then in chapter or Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, it's God's revelation through his word. So the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring his soul. Testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise is simple and so forth. And so this is about God's special revelation. Now, some commentators have the audacity to think that Paul got confused, The reason they say that is because, so is is natural revelation, that is the revelation of God in creation, is that the gospel? No. In fact, is the revelation of God in nature and creation, is that even a saving revelation? No. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans chapter 1. So what is the book of nature or or God's testimony of himself in creation? What does it do? It It is enough to give you evidence that there is a creator, a supreme creator, that you are to be loyal to, that you're to worship, right? Um, But it does not give you enough information to be saved. It testifies that God is there. It testifies to a large degree of what he is like, but that testimony is actually void of the gospel itself. You need special revelation to reveal the gospel. So the question is, if Paul's using Psalm 19.4 as a testimony, their voice has gone out into all the world, their words to the ends of the earth, Paul knows the passage. He's not confusing natural revelation with special revelation. But what is Paul doing? 
It's actually quite a powerful thing when you think about it. Paul is using the witness, or if you will, the voice of natural revelation to portray the fact that the gospel's voice, just like God's voice in natural revelation, the gospel's voice, Romans 10, 14 to 17, has in fact gone out into all the world. Tom Schreiner makes this point. He says, Paul perceives the progress and the course of the gospel is such that it now extends over the whole earth so that the proclamation of the gospel is now comparable to the all-encompassing reach of general revelation. One of the remarkable features of the new age inaugurated by Christ is the saving message is no longer restricted to Israel, but encompasses the whole world. So Paul in 1018 says their voice, their words have gone out. That is, they have Heard. Now, what about the claim that the gospel has gone out to all of the earth? He says something very similar in Colossians, doesn't he? He actually says in Colossians 1 that the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in the whole creation under heaven. Now, I don't think Paul means that in an absolute way, where like every creature on the planet had heard the gospel by, by AD 55. It's not the point. But, but there is something, and how do we know that's not the point? Well, the very reason why he's writing Romans. Why is he writing Romans? Well, you get to the end of Romans, and he says, here's my mission to go and preach Christ where Christ has not been named so that I'm not building on another man's foundation, right? So for Paul, there were still other areas that needed to hear that hadn't heard. And of course, what is Paul doing in the book of Romans? It is a missionary letter where he is raising money to get to Spain because Spain had not heard the gospel. So in one sense, what Paul is doing is is Paul is pointing out the fact that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a universal message for the nations. It extends to all peoples and is actually rapidly advancing through the Gentile mission. Do you actually realize that by the end of the first century, by the end of the apostolic era, the gospel had penetrated not only into Africa, but it had also penetrated into India. We sometimes forget how aggressive the early church was in taking the gospel to the nations. Where where are the greatest church fathers of the early church? Where do they emerge from? They emerge from North Africa. The gospel goes with power to Africa. It goes with power to India. And so here's Paul, and he is just absolutely optimistic about the universal gospel becoming universal. Or the global gospel, the gospel which is for the nations, becoming global. 
And so Paul was, was, was optimistic and enthusiastic, and he says they've heard, their voice has gone out, just as God testifies through natural revelation, and that extends to the ends of the earth. So the gospel's extending to the ends of the earth. If we could end there, it'd be marvelous. We could sing, facing a task unfinished once again. That's not where Paul ends. Verse 19, he says, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? By the way, this is expecting a yes Answer, they most certainly did know. Now, you take verses 19 and 20, and essentially you can go, okay, exhibit one that Israel heard and knew. What Moses said. So is that going to carry weight for a Jewish person? What Moses said. <laughs> okay, absolutely. Moses is the authority. And so... Paul affirms that the gospel had gone out to the nations, verse 18, which means, first of all, Israel had heard, but now he asks, but I say, Israel did not know, did they? Of course they knew. Of course, now, now what? (laughs) Know what? (laughs) You ever read Paul and just say, give me more information? What did they know? Well, before we jump to an easy answer, let me just say, did they know the gospel? And the answer is yes. How do we know the Jewish people knew the gospel? Well, because of Romans 10, 2 through 8. That gospel is actually right there embedded in their scriptures. The apostle makes the direct analogy between that that word of faith which is near you in your heart. This is the word of faith which we preach that if you believe in your heart. We went through how that text points to Jesus and to the gospel. And so they should have known the gospel. What was their problem? They wanted to establish their own righteousness, right? They wanted to establish their own righteousness and they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. And so, is that what they knew was the gospel? I don't think that's what Paul's saying they knew. What they knew was that the Gentiles themselves would be included in the saving purposes of God. The reason I think that that is the case is because that's the case he makes from the citation from Moses. So they knew that the Gentiles were going to be included. I'll show you that in a second. Did Israel resist or outright reject Gentile inclusion in the saving purposes of God? Yes. So if you're reading your Bible and you're, you're in the gospel of Luke and you get to Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16, Jesus goes into the synagogue at Capernaum where he was raised. And so, you know what? Here's, here's hometown kid, done good. And so, hey, 
Jesus, the carpenter's son, he's with us. And so they give him the scroll. And so you know what he does? He takes the scroll, which was the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up to Isaiah 61. And he reads, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel, to proclaim release to the captives, and to declare the favorable year of the Lord. And so he rolls it back up, hands it to the intendant, and then says these words, today... This has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they look at each other. Is he saying Isaiah 61 is fulfilled by him? Hang on a second. This is the carpenter's son. This is is the kid we saw playing kickball. Okay? This... This is the kid that we grew up watching him in synagogue, Sabbath by Sabbath. And Jesus says, it's true. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And then you know what Jesus does? And this is, this is the point that, that, that Paul's getting at. Jesus says, So you know what? You remember uh, that widow of Zarephath? Who happened to be what? A Gentile. So in the days of Elijah, guess what? God specially fed her and not anyone else in Israel. In other words, God took care of a Gentile widow, not you guys. Mm. What's he getting at? Weren't there other lepers in the land of Israel? Did God heal any of them? The answer is no. But he did take a Gentile military commander by the name of Naaman and actually does what? Heals him. Didn't do it in Israel. The people start getting the point. And you know what they did? They looked over to the organist and they said, You should start playing just as I am, and we should have an invitation right here because this is really, this is marvelous news. And so, um, uh, you know, the buses will wait. Come on up. It's not what they did. The text says they were filled with rage. Why were they filled with rage? Because Jesus is emphasizing that the gospel that he came to proclaim and that Messiahship that he came to fulfill was going to benefit the nations in a way that it didn't benefit Israel. And they knew it. Filled with rage, they take him out to the edge of town and they're ready to do what? Throw him over a cliff. Why? Because he mentioned two Gentiles that were saved in the midst of Israel, which wasn't. And so when Paul says, they know, don't they? They know what? 
They know that Gentiles are going to be included in the saving purposes of God. Paul then brings forth his evidence, which is Deuteronomy 32, 21. And you can see the way that he quotes it. I will make you, Israel, jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And so he says, Moses actually says in the song of Moses, prophesying about Israel's future failure and covenant breaking, that God was going to actually do something among the Gentiles that was going to be using them as a foreign people to provoke unbelieving, covenant-breaking Israel to jealousy and to anger. By the way, Paul will pick up that theme once again. I already read one of the verses. He magnified his ministry among the Gentiles to do what? In order to provoke Israel to jealousy. What Israel knew, verse 20, Paul's now going to explain how God used the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. And what he's going to do is he's going to take Isaiah 65, 1 and 2, and he's going to take verse 1, apply it to the Gentiles, and he's going to take verse 2 and apply it to Israel. So just listen, I'm going to quote directly from Isaiah. I permitted myself, God speaking, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. Remember what Paul says back in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so Paul's point is this. God has revealed himself to a non-covenantal people who were looking for God like a thief looks for a cop. That's what they were doing. They had no interest in God. These pagan nations had no desire for the true God. And God turns around, and what does he say? He says, I reveal myself to people that weren't even looking for me. John Stott calls this dramatic imagery. For grace. Some of you know exactly what, that, what that's like, right? You weren't looking for God. You weren't pondering the great, great questions of life. You weren't trying to find yourself. Which is just an excuse for hedonism, by the way. And... One day, God says, so, you don't give two hoots, huh? I'm going to mess up your day. I'm going to mess up your day. I'm going to turn your life upside down, and you're going to be calling on a God that you've never even looked for. Okay? (laughs) Right? 
And so here are the Gentiles, not in the covenant, not worshiping God. And Isaiah 65, 1, it actually just reveals the result of God's unfettered grace. He was sought and he was found because he permitted it to be so by a people that weren't even looking for him. And so God's free grace reaches out to a people who did not know him, made no effort to find him. And the reality is, is that they were found by him. And so Israel heard. And Israel knew. What did they know? They knew from their own scriptures that their heart would be hardened against God. They knew from their own scriptures that they would fall away from God. They knew from their own scriptures that they would break the covenant. They knew from their own scriptures that they would be exiled to lands outside of the land. And they knew that in that exiled state, Gentiles would come to know the covenant God of Israel and would inherit the blessings of God's own covenant love. They knew it. They knew it. And then verse 21, my goodness, I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. That is Isaiah 65, 2 in its fullness. But as for Israel, Paul says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so you have to appreciate what Paul does here. He moves away from the the sense of God's... um, This isn't the best way to put it, but he moves away from God's passive grace towards the Gentiles in which he allows them to find him and then moves to his active, intentional, passionate outreach to his own covenant people, right? So Gentiles over here don't know God. They're not looking for God. God actually says, By my grace, I'm going to allow you to find me. I'm going to allow you to call upon my name. I'm going to give you the blessings. And then over here, Israel, by virtue of covenant, should be the heirs of the blessing. And instead, God says, I reach out my hands all day to you, you who know. You who know better. You who know truth. And at the end of the day, I'm stretching out my hand to simply a rebellious and obstinate people. The language is moving. All day long, I have stretched out my hands. Do you know the imagery of stretching out your hands? You're imploring, you're beseeching, you're inviting, you're summoning, you are, you are pleading to come. And God says, all day long, I've done that for you. 
I've pled with you. I've reached out my hand to you. I've extended not only my hands, I've extended to you my very heart. God is not some kind of impersonal deity who's executing some kind of clinical decree that, that in which he doesn't really care about people. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is deeply personal, profoundly personal. R.C. Sproul was so good. He says, Paul uses the imagery of God with palms open, beseeching people, exhorting them, inviting them, telling them to come to him. And he stands there, not just for a second, not just for a moment, not just for a five-minute altar call, but all day long. The reasons why people don't come to God is not because God fails to invite them, nor is it the logical conclusion from the doctrine of predestination, but it's rooted in disobedience and obstinacy. It is precisely because man is in a state of rebellion that he will not respond to the gospel unless the sovereign God conquers his rebellious heart. So here, the God of Romans 9, the God of free and sovereign electing grace of Romans 9, the God of whom it is said, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, he hardens whom he hardens. The God of whom it is said, does not depend on the man who runs or the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. It is that God who is sovereign. It is that God who elects, who actually says also, and I stand there all day long with my hands extended to you. Israel's unbelief was on them. They were disobedient. They were defiant. They were doing their own thing. They were a law unto themselves. And this is not just the message of Isaiah that Paul picks up. Jeremiah 7.13. And now, because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you. Listen to the way God speaks. Rising up early and speaking. But you did not hear. I called you. But you did not answer. So there stands God. As a loving. Broken hearted. Evangelist. A loving broken-hearted father extending his hands in loving appeal. There's a couple of things we need to point out as we, as we wrap up this text. One, There's no contradiction between the strong emphasis on God's divine sovereignty in Romans 9 and man's full responsibility in Romans 10. There's there's no contradiction. Paul didn't have some sort of logical lapse 
in his thinking and starts writing about man's responsibility in Romans 10. No, he writes both Romans 9 and 10, and they're complementary. But the other thing is, is that there is no contradiction between a God who elects and a God who pleads. You say to yourself, man, I, I can't get those two ideas together in my, in my head. They don't, they don't fit. The, the Lego pieces don't come together in, in my brain. And let me, just, let me just say, duh. If you think God is, is like this, these logical boxes that fit together and everything is like really super neat and you go, oh, well, that fits with this just like that. And oh yeah, the Trinity, no sweat. Herman Bovink said, mystery is the lifeblood of theology. And so there's no contradiction between the God who sovereignly elects in Romans chapter 9 and the God who pleads in, at the end of Romans chapter 10. Let me just say that attempts to reconcile these truths always end up falling short. And I'll tell you why. Because most of the attempts to harmonize divine sovereignty, human responsibility, or a sovereign God who elects and a sovereign God who pleads, most of those attempts at harmonization are philosophical in nature and end up giving a perspective on God that is simply philosophically speculative. The tendency in trying to philosophically speculate is that you end up doing one of two things almost always. One is, you, you, you end up on one of two extremes. And so, if you think and you're looking at Scripture and go, how does this all fit together? The one tendency is to actually have a perspective on God in which he is dependent on his creation and he is limited in his attributes such as knowledge and therefore um, this God is actually pleading but at the end of the day he doesn't know whether you're going to say yes or not. Okay, Let me just say without hesitation that is not the God of the Bible. Okay? But then you go over here. And these guys look at those guys and go, idiots, all right? And then they turn around and they go, so what we have here is we have to understand that we have certain Greek philosophical categories. And so what we have at the end of the day is, is, the, is the unmoved mover, the God who actually, it looks like he cares, <laughs> but he doesn't. It looks like he has a heart. He's got a divine mind. And the divine mind puts, the, puts that clinical sterile decree into execution so that all, all that you experience are simply the ripple effects of what God decided in eternity. And so they throw around these big words that end up doing what? End up negating the reality of the fact that the sovereign God is also the God who pleads with sinners to come to him. If you pick one side or the other, 
you're going to pick wrong. If you pick over here, God is altogether too much like you. You pick over here and just say, yeah, God doesn't have longings. God doesn't have yearnings. They're anthropomorphisms. You're wrong. Better solution. Sovereign God who elects human responsibility. Sovereign God who elects and then also pleads with sinners. Here's, here's, here's the solution. You hang on to both. You hang on to both. And you go, well, I, they, they don't fit together. Okay, well, let me, can, can I just be honest with you? Your pea brain and mine are not designed for the limited finite to comprehend the infinite and the incomprehensible. And so I read my Bible and I'm, I'm totally at ease. The sovereign God of Romans 9 also pleads with sinners at the end of chapter 10. You hold both. You don't give up either. And so that solution doesn't resolve the tension. It just simply acknowledges that the tension is there. It doesn't resolve divine immutability, genuine affections. It actually just says, look, there's a tension. You're puny. I'm puny. This is what God's revealed. Believe it. Second, final thing. God stretches out his hands as a genuine offer of mercy and pardon to anyone who will turn from their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not some phony promise, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the promise of God. It's a promise that's been sealed with the blood of the Savior. It's a promise that has been secured by the empty tomb. It is a promise that is applied by the sovereign Lord who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so God offers that pardon and salvation to you and he does it earnestly. The sovereign God of Romans 9 is the God who holds forth his his hand in genuine offer of forgiveness and pardon and reconciliation. You have to understand that this is the God who has already told us back in the Old Testament, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked were turned from his way and live. Turn back, 
Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? That is the heart of our sovereign God. And even today, he extends his hand to you. If you are without Christ, if you are lost, if you are still under a load of sin and you want to be forgiven and you think to yourself, I've done so many bad things. I have so many marks against me. There's no way that God would ever forgive Give me. Listen, sinner, God extends his hands to you and offers you a full pardon and the forgiveness of all of your sins if you will but turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that offer is sincere, it is genuine. And if you are not saved, And you walk out of here not saved. It's not because God didn't extend his hand to you. It's because you remained defiant and obstinate. God offers that mercy through his son. And he offers it today, and today is the day of salvation. But listen carefully, please. As God extends his hand in genuine offer of pardon and forgiveness to remain defiant and rebellious against such genuine offers of mercy, it only increases the wrath that is due to you. Let's just say that I'm feeling just peculiarly magnanimous. And I walk up to Jesse and I say, Jesse, you're about to have number two. Good for you. Here is a gift card to Babies Are Us for a million dollars. And Jesse goes, I don't need your money. I said, Jesse, no, it's, there's, just take it, it's yours. I don't want your charity. Jesse, you're a jerk. Okay? You are a bona fide, rebellious, defiant bonehead. How would I feel about the guy that just spurned an offer of kindness and mercy? If you understand the way that your heart would respond to mercy spurned, think about the infinite mercy of God which is being offered to you in Jesus Christ. Do not remain rebellious and defiant. Receive what he is offering to you today. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray.
Our gracious God, we pray that you would be mightily at work in the hearts of those who are without Christ and without hope. Father, for those of us who have tasted and seen that you're good, we pray that we would just simply rejoice that you let us find you, even though we weren't looking. Father, may today be the day of salvation for many. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.